0: So if you didn't guess via the prayer, the sermon is about forgiveness. Um, I was thinking deep, deep, heavy, important, super religious and holy thoughts about forgiveness uh, this week as I was on my way to an appointment uh, the appointment's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, so I'm, I'm traveling uh, through kind of country areas, and I, I'm, I'm driving along, and I'm thinking about forgiveness. I'm thinking about Matthew 18, where where we'll be today, and I'm thinking about, you know, how does forgiveness work, and how do we give forgiveness, and how do we receive forgiveness from God, and just thinking about these sorts of things. I'm following behind this this blue pickup, and we're coming down kind of along um, along a curve, and the bend is about to go up this way, but it's kind of forking off in the road. I'm following this blue pickup, thinking these deep spiritual thoughts considering scripture and he begins to slow down doesn't use a blinker of course but you know there are people out there that are like that you know he's slowing down and I so I'm not you know nothing I slow down as well and he slows and he slows and he slows until suddenly guys I kid you not he comes to a complete stop in the middle of this road no stop sign no yield signs no oncoming traffic complete stop in the middle of the road and then it is almost as if Mr. Uh, Red Cap in the blue truck thinks to himself, how could I infuriate this man even more? Why don't I come to a complete stop and just kind of wait for a couple of seconds? And true enough, he does. I'm, I'm irate. I'm, Where did you learn how to drive? Turn! Why are you stopped? Why are you waiting? All of these things. Where did you learn to drive? Idiot, Turn! And he turns, and I step on the gas, kind of like somebody who just yelled at a car, you know, steps on the gas, and I go flying, deep breath in. Okay, now about forgiveness. (laughs) And all of God's people said, we are guilty (laughs) too. Just to highlight the point, right, forgiveness is a thing that, that we believe in, we love, we think a lot about. I was drawn immediately to the scripture. As I, as I began to think about forgiveness, literally this is what happened to me. I started thinking about forgiveness, and then I like stop and think, forgiveness? You just yelled at that guy. Like, and I was reminded of James, who so famously puts it this way. He says, with our tongues we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. And is that True. And the Bible has a word to say about that because James after this says, My brothers and sisters, it should not be. <laughs> it shouldn't be that way. He does give us some clues about what should replace that. And I really, I really love this passage. This is James. He's talking a little bit further. He says, The wisdom that is from, from above, the wisdom that comes from God, the, the way to live in the world that is of God is first pure, then peaceable, Then gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruit, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. Now, I don't know where you are on your spiritual journey today. I don't know where you are and what you believe about God or Jesus or the Bible or church or any of these other things. But let me just ask you for a second, wouldn't this be a better world? Even if you think God might not really exist, even if you think the Bible is sort of full of inadequacies and er- er- errors and, and all kinds of things, like, even, if, even if all of that's true, like read this and listen to it. Doesn't this sound like a better world? If we embraced this and said, this is what we'll pursue, this is what we'll tattoo on our arms, this is what it will write on our minds, this is what will come to the forefront when that guy not only comes to a complete stop in the middle of the road, but waits for five seconds to really test your level of forgiveness, wouldn't this be a better response? And this is what God is calling to you. This is the the root of our religion. Our religion is literally a religion of peace. Peace. We declare good news. And what is that good news? That good news is that we who are broken, who owe God so, so much, who have corrupted so much, God has redeemed us in Jesus Christ and invites you into his kingdom. But he doesn't invite invite you by yourself. He invites all of those with you who would come. And so not only do we declare peace with God, but we also declare peace with one another. We declare peace with one another. The person who is wise in light of God's wisdom is the person who cultivates peace. And the action that drives peace is the process of forgiveness. Nothing else drives peace like forgiveness, which is why the Bible has so much to say about it. And this is where we fail. This is where we fail. We like forgiveness, everyone likes forgiveness. Forgiveness is a good idea. We get moved by stories of forgiveness. And yet we, when we are called upon to be the people who forgive, that, that's where we kind of miss it, right? And not just, do we, uh, not just that we fail to give forgiveness, but we don't pursue forgiveness. And I want you to see that that is a, a driving distance between what we see in Jesus and what we see in ourselves, is that Jesus pursued forgiveness. He pursued forgiveness to such an extent that he left the glories of heaven, took on flesh, dwelt amongst us to pursue us so that we might receive forgiveness, so that we might have peace with God. Does that same heart drive you? Will you leave your glories, whatever they may be, to sacrifice your life so that you might have peace with someone? In this uh, Bible series that we've been working through, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. It will be in Matthew 18. If you didn't grab a Bible, bring one with you, or don't have one downloaded, that's okay. Just grab one like this. It's in the pew in front of you. I'm on page 824. That's where we'll be this morning. We've been looking at a a series of parables in which Jesus says something, uh, usually beginning his parable, with something that sounds like what we get here in verse 23. The kingdom of heaven, so Matthew 18, verse 23, page 824 if you're using this Bible. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, uh, sometimes he'll say something like the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like, And then he gives us a thick, storied description, and we've been talking about it in a positive sense, like in the sense of saying, look at what God has in store for you, trying to convert our imaginations, but there might come a moment where you hear one of Jesus' parables, and you say to yourself, listen, I'm not really down with that not really interested in that. And we have to be open to that. I want you to be open to that. When you read the parable of Jesus, does this spark something in you that says, this is who I am. This is what I want to see happen. This is the world I want to live in. This is the imagination that I want to, I want to have in my mind so that I can act like him. Or when you read it, do you just say, "Meh," because if we read a parable that begins, the kingdom of God looks like this, and we walk away from it saying, Meh, maybe this isn't our religion. Maybe your religion is not Jesus's religion. And we need to take account of ourselves as we read these things. We need to take account of ourselves and ask the question is this speaking to us? Is it speaking to me? Notice as you look at verse 23, you just kind of have to do this a little bit. It begins with therefore, which is a key word. And if you're sort of new to reading scripture, you want to pay attention to words like that. Because this word leans us or informs us that there's something that happened before. All of chapter 18 hangs together. All of it sort of works together. When you're reading the scriptures, you should not pay as much attention to chapters Or headings, because they're sometimes a little bit deceiving to us. This is all one instance. And what's really interesting, if you turn your page to 18 verse 1, you see this. At the time, or at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest of the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a little child, he put him, him, that is the child, in the midst of them, saying, unless you become like this, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have something really interesting. It starts with a question, this whole, before we even get to the parable, it began with a question about greatness, And we have a clue, we have have this sort of scene where we actually get to see inside of Jesus teaching his disciples. There's no other crowds around. This is a very intimate moment. This is Jesus and his closest followers. And his closest followers ask him a question. How do we know who's the greatest of your followers? And Jesus pulls a nine-year-old and sets him in the middle of everybody and says, be like that kid. And everyone said, no. No, that doesn't work. What's Jesus after here? He's trying to, again, evoke their imaginations. He's trying to bring them to a new vista to help them to understand the question they're asking is the wrong kind of question. The wrong kind of question is not who's the biggest on the play yard. The question is who is Jesus, right? He's drawing them to a new way of seeing the world. He's helping them to understand that. And that's where that question of greatness comes from, right? We're trying to find out who's in charge. But maybe that, maybe that actually could be an interesting question for us today, just to consider. Who is the most mature Christian in this room? I'm glad no one stood up and said me, because that would have been... But Just think for a second. Who is the most... How would we determine the, the maturest Christian, the best Christian, the cream of the crop? How would we determine that? Jesus says in his parable, so looking at the parable, because I had to jump in there in case some of you tried to answer. Let me just hang on there. Rhetorical question. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king, verse twenty-four of Matthew, 23 of Matthew 18, who went to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay... The master ordered that he be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had. And he be turned over so that payment might be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring the master. Imploring him, have patience with me. I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him. And forgave the debt. Selah. We'll stop there for a second. Uh, I want to hang there. Jesus continues on. But I think that this kind of gets at some of the things that are happening before. They're questioning about who is the greatest. And who, can, who, who, who is the one who really gets it. And Jesus chooses a child. And why does he choose a child? Because I think a child in many ways understands the, the ability to receive. And that seems to be what's happening here, isn't it? This, enc- this kind of encounter happens throughout Jesus' life. Jesus is sitting at a table one time with all of the right people. All of the right people. He's making connections. He's networking. All right? He's doing all of the right things. He's sitting at the table. And all of a sudden, in comes the wrong kind of woman. And she falls at Jesus' feet. She anoints him with expensive oil. She weeps over his feet, dries his feet with, his, with her hair. And everyone is embarrassed. Can you imagine if somebody did that just right now? Right? Imagine how awkward and embarrassing that moment would be. Everyone's just like, "Oh man, what's my like?" Because even in the best situation, that's weird, right? Weird and awkward, and everyone is scandalized. And Jesus is totally okay with it. He says she's done something beautiful. She's recognized the weight of her sin. She's come to me to receive forgiveness for that weight, to have that burden removed. And she's shown how far she is willing to humiliate herself in order to achieve that. She realizes that she is nothing and that I am everything. She gets it. And y'all, don't. You don't. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven, they love little. But the one who is forgiven much, loves much. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. This servant had a great debt. In fact, most of the times if you've got Bibles, maybe you're not using the same one I'm using. You're using one on your phone or maybe you brought one from home. But they'll often give a little subtitle to this story and it'll be something like uh, the unmerciful servant or the unfaithful servant. I think that's a wrong title because I don't think this is about the servant. I think this is about the king. The title of this parable should be something more like the merciful king. The merciful king who looks upon this one, who owes him 10,000 talents, and there's, we could do some dirty math, but, but let's just say this is an astronomical sum. Millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of dollars that this person owes. Some estimates range from, from 6,000 dollars, U.S. dollars to a talent to as much as 1.5 million to a talent. Depends on the price of gold and how much exactly we're talking. But we're talking about an astronomical, unpayable amount. So when the servant falls on his knees and says, be patient with me, I will pay you back everything. Is he telling the truth or is he lying? He's lying, right? Because he just can't. He can't. And the master knows it. He's not an idiot. He's a king for a reason. He knows it. And he, out of his pity, forgives anyway. My friends, this to me, I think, is one of the tremendous dangers of growing older in the faith. This is the danger for all of you who are older Christians. And by older, I don't just mean older in age. I mean, you've been a Christian for a long time. Two things emerge, as I observe, not only outwardly, but also inwardly. Two things emerge out of being a Christian for a long period of time. Two dangers, and the first is this, that we forget to fix the font again. <laughs> but luckily there aren't long passages, so it should be okay. Uh, we forget the size of our debt. We forget the size of our debt. We begin to c- become convinced that our debt's actually less than other people's debts. We think they've got, they're the bigger sinners than we are. We forget that. The second thing is this. We forget that we serve a God who wants to forgive like that's God's primary disposition to us is the one who sees as a father to a child the desire to forgive and to embrace, to bring in, to invite. Everything about scripture is an invitation to you. God reaching out to you through his prophets, his messengers, his laws, through himself in Jesus Christ, through the apostles and the saints, through the very scriptures you hold in your hand, you have an invitation to experience the fullness of forgiveness in God. And after 30 years walking with the Lord, some of you much longer than me, but for 30 years for myself, I see and sense the danger of holiness. Because what happens is as we grow in faith, we set aside the things that are sort of visible and outwardly, but oftentimes we never touch the deep wealth of sin that we have buried under the surface. And so what I see in mature, older Christians who call themselves mature, older Christians is not the drinking, smoking, chewing, and going with girls that do. It's pride. You can get rid of all that stuff, hold all the pride, and never have changed. That's what I see. That's what I battle in myself. That's the work that we have to do is we have to recognize and continually keep in front of ourselves that you owe God 10,000 talents, a weight of death you can never repay. And so God, out of his immense grace, has paid it, set you free, and has sent you into the world to be declarers of God's own goodness and forgiveness. And it tells us something important about God, about who God is, God is the one who lets our sins go? That's why we're taught to pray, forgive us our debts. And if you learn to pray, and I've, I've harped on this many times and I continue to harp on it, if you learn to pray, forgive us our trespasses or forgive us our sins, you learned it wrong. It's forgive us our debts, literally in Greek, but also figuratively because we know what it's like to have a debt over your head. You, how many of you know what it's like to have debt over your head? That a bank could step in because you haven't been able to pay the next few past months of mortgage. And they can take what you have and your family is homeless. You understand that, right? We know that. We know the weight of that. We know the feeling of that in our guts. If you ever lost a job, you really know what's that, what that's like. All of that, that is what sin is like in us. That is what we owe to God. And that debt is what God has removed from you completely. So you can be free. But not free to do anything you want. This is one of these tragedies. that's sort of emerged. I could talk about the history of it, but I won't. I won't. <laughs> uh, this is one of the problems that sort of emerged in modern Christianity is when we hear words like "free gift of grace." So we hear words like this. We it, we impute something really bizarre about gift giving. We start talking. Well, it's a it's a stringless gift. No 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 attachments. Like God just gives it to you, and you just get it and run away with it. No. There are immense strings attached to God's forgiveness. Huge, big, life-altering strings attached to God's gifts of grace. We see that following, don't we? The parable doesn't end here. The parable continues. Out of pity for him, the servant was released. and The master forgives the debt. But then in verse 28, the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. His fellow servant fell down and pled with him, pleaded with him, said, be patient with me, I will pay you. He refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Will he ever pay all his debt? And Jesus here editorializes. That's the end of the parable. And Jesus gives us the point. He says, so also my heavenly father, will do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Well, that's heavy, right? What's interesting about Jesus is there are times that he says things that I'm just like I don't understand that at all. Last week we talked about the parable of uh, of the dishonest manager. And how bizarre the story was. And we try to wrestle with what what, what what is Jesus even trying to get at? And then Jesus says something that is cr- clear as crystal, and I hate it so much. Right? Because I understand what Jesus is saying right there. There's no ambiguities. It is clear. Can we do it? Can we seek to practice it? In fact, what drives this is a verse earlier, right? In verse 21. Just a few verses up, Peter comes to Jesus and says, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother? Should I forgive him seven times? And Jesus says famously, I'm not saying seven times, I'm saying 77 times. Of course, the point here is not the amount of times. The point is the number seven and how numbers in the Bible often aren't used to specify exact figures, but rather meant to communicate theological truth. So when we see a number in the Bible, we pay attention to it because it says something about who God is and who we are in God. Seven is a number that references perfection. Peter is saying, "If I forgive seven times, I've forgiven a, a, a good. Enough. If somebody betrays you seven times, you keep letting him into your house. Are you a pretty forgiving person? If they keep like stealing stuff out of your fridge, like where did my Coke Zero go? And like, Eric Dush is walking on my house with a twelve pack, and like." He stole it again. Like, why does he keep stealing? If, you, if somebody kept betraying you and seven times you forgive them, I would be like, wow, man, you're really great. You're really holy. That's great. And Jesus says, no, S- more than that. I think, this is, uh, I think this is such a beautiful picture. I think it's so hard to wrap our minds around this, but that's what's driving here. Jesus is trying to drive them towards maturity. They started here with the most immature question it, they could possibly have asked. Jesus, which one of us gets to boss the other ones around? I mean, thats I kind of want to know that too. <laughs> right? I mean, we get why they would ask that question. And Jesus is driving them. He's driving them away from this immaturity, this childishness. In fact, something that isn't even quite childish enough. He uses child, a child to demonstrate their childishness, but he's driving them to understand, listen, what this is all about is God drawing people together. He's drawing them together, not separating and stratifying them. He's bringing them into his kingdom. He's inviting them to experience and to experience by giving forgiveness. This is why Jesus instructs them, hey listen, when somebody wrongs you, you go and you talk to them. This is a part of Matthew 18, as many of you know as well. The parable couldn't be more obvious. It's in fact written so scandalously into the Lord's Prayer. I think it's, it's really quite interesting and bizarre. So here, here we get, this is the Lord's Prayer. You learned how to pray this when you were kids, maybe. Um, or maybe you learned it in VBS or something like that. But here we have, forgive us our debts. This is the latter half of it. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation or trial, but deliver us from the evil one. So forgiveness is built into the prayer that we ought to be praying as often as we can. But then... Of course, Jesus breaks off, and instead of giving us a nice clean end and a switch of transi- like a transition to something else, or more talk about prayer, he stops talking about prayer completely to tell us about forgiveness, and he says essentially what he just said in this parable. If you, do not for- if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses or debts, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses or debts. Why is this such a hang-up? Why is this such a thing? What does this help us to understand? It helps us to understand who the most spiritual person in the room is. And the most spiritual person in the room, the most mature Christian, the Christian who gets it, is not necessarily the one who knows the most about the Bible, not necessarily the one who prays the most, or has the best church title, or gives the most, or shows up to the most events, or serves the most. It is the person who has learned how to receive and how to give forgiveness there's nothing, I, I, there, there, there may be, somebody can correct me later, but I, I was trying to rack my brain to find a verse I thought that was more clear. If you don't forgive, God will not forgive you. How many passages do we have that say, God will not forgive you? There's very few. There's very few. So this is a really big deal, guys. It is a really big deal that if you say, I want to follow in the path of the crucified Savior, I have to take on the difficult task of forgiveness. Now, this isn't a moment of fear or condemnation. I'm not looking at anyone or talking about anyone. I don't know who you've forgiven or who you haven't forgiven. I don't know how that works in your life. But what I do know is that Scripture is calling us to be a people of forgiveness. And what I do know as somebody who has grudges, can I say that? Is that okay? Who has grudges, because we all do, that it is a very difficult process to learn how to forgive. And that what scripture is not saying is if right now you cannot fully like just exude mercy and love upon every single person you ever meet, you're not getting into the kingdom, right? That is not what scripture is telling you. Scripture is pushing us to understand the extremity of what it means to see ourselves in light of who we are. How heavy our own burden, how great the mercy of God. And then experiencing the forgiveness and mercy of God needs to pour itself out into our lives in such a way that we learn how to forgive and to love others as well. This is actually probably where we ought to utilize some of Jesus' words, that famous passage where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged for the same way that you judge somebody else, the same measure, the same rubric, criteria that you use on somebody else will be used against you. So you may not like a particular kind of sexual sin. You might judge people who are homosexual or transgender or something like that, but you harbor thoughts about somebody else. That measure will be used against you. Right? It's important for us to recognize these serious bits of what Jesus is talking about And what's interesting about this parable is is that the man, the one servant, owed him, didn't he? How much? A hundred denarii, which is a significant sum. A denarii might have been about a day's wage. So we're talking thousands of dollars, possibly. The servant was not wrong to go to his fellow servant and say, You owe me. That was fine. What was the problem? The lack of mercy. I imagine in this room there are many people who have received a significant wound from another person. That somebody has done something tragic and deep and wrong to you, and the Bible is not covering, covering that over and pretending it didn't happen. The Bible says, no, that servant owed him. The problem was, he forgot the mercy he received. There's a lot going on in the story that is calling us to understand the importance of forgiveness, in fact, as I said earlier, Jesus points out in verse 15 of this same chapter, chapter 18, there, he's talking about how we go about the process of forgiveness, of peacemaking. He says, if a brother's in verse 15, if a brother sins against you, you go and you tell him their fault between him, you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother, right? Because that's the point of all of this. The point of all of this is forgiveness, it's reconciliation, it's drawing people together, not pushing them further apart. That is all about what Jesus is doing, and that is what he is calling us to. To do. He's calling us to be the people who are willing to do the hard work of mercy. He's calling us to be people that pursue it, who run for it. Jesus has this passage, he says, If you come to the altar, if you come to church, and you know somebody has something against you, and you come to bring your gift, your offering, maybe money, maybe time, maybe prayer, maybe song, maybe just your presence and being, you came to church this morning for a reason. But if you know that somebody has something against you, Jesus says, leave what you're doing and go and make peace, because that peace is what God is after. That is the message of the cross, is the invitation to draw all people toward God. We are agents of that message. We are agents of that good news. And it needs to be something that is visibly seen. And so the first thing that we take away from this this parable is the first thing that we should take away from every parable. And that is an image of God. And the image of God is this. God is the God who wants to forgive you. Some of you need to hear that. God is the God who wants to forgive you. He wants to set aside all of that 10,000 talents, all of that debt, all that is owed, he wants to set it aside and he wants to embrace you and draw you in. But he doesn't just want to embrace you, he wants to embrace everyone around you. But the way that those people around you are going to see and experience the fullness of God's grace and mercy, the God who they cannot see will be what they see in you, the person they can see. And if we are unable to love one another, how could we possibly say we love God? If we can't forgive one another, how can we possibly say we've received forgiveness from God if it doesn't impact us in such a way that we are the people who have received the invitation, accepted the invitation, received the benefit, the goodness, the life of Jesus, and then not give it out to the world have we received that invitation at all? No, we have to be the people who live this. The wisdom from above is pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. There's a passage in Scripture that says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. They should look at Christians and they should say, that is an incredibly reasonable person. They're willing to sit with me and be reasonable. So stay off social media. Willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy because a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace for those who make peace. So my brothers and sisters, I call upon you today to receive the forgiveness of the living God. And I call upon you to be the people who prize peace so much that they pursue it by seeking forgiveness, both in receiving and in giving. Let's stand as we sing this last song.